Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. The art of Yoko Ono is notoriously hard to summarise. Her career spans seven decades and the scope is extraordinary. She's known as an artist of various mediums, a musician and, well before it was de rigueur, an activist. But it's also hard to sum up the Ono oeuvre because so much of it takes place in the imagination. Just as the sky is a motif that recurs throughout her work, Ono's art opens up the ether to the ideas and the experiences of her audience. Through interactive performances or idiosyncratic installations, open-ended instructions that catch you off guard, perhaps. Ono has always been nothing if not radical. A new exhibition in London, Yoko Ono, Music of the Mind, explores the wealth of Ono's back catalogue. The performances, instruction pieces, films, music and photography of her career are put together against bright white walls and brought back to life. Or maybe the point is that they didn't need resurrecting at all and have simply remained as relevant as when they were first created. On today's show, we'll be exploring this exhibition. We'll be looking back at Yoko Ono's career and forward at her continued legacy. First up, I was joined in the studio by the arts journalist Andrew Mayle and the writer and broadcaster Jennifer Lucy Allen to talk about the show and the wider impact of Yoko Ono's work. And Andrew and Jennifer join us in the studio today. Lovely to have you both on the programme, live around the mics here in Studio One. I think we all thoroughly enjoyed our time at Tate Modern. What I'd like to do, first of all, for our listeners is walk them briefly through the show. Andrew, what sort of, what are we getting? Because what we're not getting is sort of huge uh, spiders. We're not getting huge canvases. We're getting a lot of paper and sort of smaller time artefacts. Yes, you're getting small bits of written text. You're getting black and white film. But you're also getting participatory elements Mm -hmm. because, you know, Yoko Ono is so... There is a chance to, you know, hammer a nail into a white canvas. There's a chance to climb inside a large black bag and undress, you know, should you (laughs) feel the need. Jennifer's nodding. Uh, She's obviously one of the guilty party around this table. But there are also little corners of sort of contemplation and play. There's her famous white chess set where all the pieces are white. And so the, the whole idea is like you you enter into a kind of state of combat and then you forget who's who's on what side. And so you abandon the game, which obviously has wider implications. So there's there's different layers and different degrees of participation. But there's also points where you're just caught in thought and silence mm. as well which seems very yeah. sort of uh, key to Yoko Ono. And there's also areas where you can go off and listen to her music on headphones as well. Indeed. So it's multimedia. It's not. It doesn't immediately strike you as something sort of, as you say, as something on a grand scale. But by the time you get through to the end of it, you're, you're quite... Drain suggests that it's a bad experience, but you have been through the emotional ringer. Yeah, indeed. Um, which which is an exceptional thing for it to do for for its not for its subject matter, but for the size and scale of its artifacts, I suppose. I also think that's a part of it in terms of the age of some of the works. Like uh-huh. I found some of them way more affecting than I was expecting. And then 
you know, I think we'll talk about it in a bit, but cut piece, I just had to walk away from it. Yeah. I couldn't mm. watch it. And I, and I think that's really incredible that these works, even back to the early ones, still felt really, really fresh. Like Andrew says, you kind of choose your participation in it. It's not participatory in a way that you are obligated to either engage or not engage. There are all these different modes in which you can engage that are... Some of them are private and some of them are public mm. and some of them you contribute and some of them you're just a observer. Also an observer of other people that are walking around the show, I suppose. Yes, well. absolutely Not just amazing. the artist, but also your fellow punters, I suppose. Yeah, wow. I mean, bag piece. I, I looked at it and I thought, this is a press view. Nobody is getting in that bag. <laughs> but somebody got in the bag. I have to confess, I didn't get in the bag. I did not I get in the bag I feel a bit ashamed of myself. That wasn't a good enough sport. But, I was going to ask you both... What makes a Yoko Ono artwork a sort of atypical one, if we could be as sort of crass as, as trying to be as universal as that? But let's focus on cut piece because it is such a well-known work. Mm. I think this is from 1960 originally. It can be a typical work of Yoko Ono's. It's certainly perhaps a best-known work of art. And this was 1964, and it was done live. It was performed live, and it was her wearing quite expensive clothes and she invited members of the audience who were sitting around her quite close to the stage in fact to come forth pick up the the only pair of scissors the pair of scissors on the stage and cut all of her clothes off mm. and it is full of well, whatever you bring as an audience member to it it's worth saying the film that's shown is of an older performance of it yeah and the scissors are quite big like these big really shiny scissors and the part that i saw was a guy maybe in his like late 20s early 30s and he gets up and he sort of brandishes the scissors like a weapon and he went snip, snip in the air. Right. And then he sort of knelt down next to her and she's always kind of got, already kind of got the the black dresses kind of uh, hanging off her shoulder and he just starts snipping exactly where her slip is on her cleavage Mm. and she is completely still and watching. And I think that moment is what I found. I just thought I can't. I can't imagine myself ever doing this performance. Like this it feels very like a traumatic thing to do. But the space in it, the way it obligates the audience to make decisions about what this work is, I think is like just so incredible. I think that exposing or revealing of you or the audience as a person viewing or being involved in art, that is fundamental to a Yokona piece and of art. Yeah. Also, I think the other point, but it's related, is asking the audience to complete the artwork, yeah. which is one of her key things, that basically cut piece isn't cut piece until the audience is involved. So therefore, it's how they respond to the instructions, the score yeah. that Yoko has given them and what they do with it that makes the art piece. But also... With a lot of Yoko's pieces, especially with some of the darker ones, it references back to the war. And you so you think of the treatment of sort of women during the war and you think of the treatment of female prisoners and things like mm. that. So it has, it exists. It, I think what the, oh, another one of the things about Yoko's art is that it is about being in the moment and how you respond to the moment, but it also resonates out of that. So it has resonance to the past and the future as well and, and sort of how we see each other. The one thing that maybe isn't in Cut Piece and maybe one of the reasons why I think Cut Piece, I would not hold Cut Piece as completely indicative, is it lacks that kind of the wit yeah. You know, there's some there is something very kind of, you know, or in in the process of it becoming cut piece there's something very angry 
in it and there's something very kind of upsetting in it. But so much of the stuff that you saw in the exhibition, it's funny. And it's funny in the way that so many of the instructions that she gives you can't be completed. There are artworks there that you can't do. You they can't. are utterly zen. They're utterly cosmic. Well, they, they are yeah, exactly. Yeah. They are zen Cohen's, you know. And so that <laughs> yeah. what they're doing is they're asking you to kind of, in a way, reconfigure how your brain works. Mm-hmm. You know, she's asking you to do things that you can't do physically, but you might be able to do inside your head. And again, but that once again, this is something I think you described quite eloquently as the art of delegation, Andrew. Yes, about the the audience. The, the looker on finishing the artwork or at least, or taking it taking it to the finish line, as but it were. Yeah. I, that's interesting that you say finish line because another thing about cut piece is that it can finish, but I think part of this, as you say, the delegation means that because you're taking it on and you're taking it with you when you walk out of the gallery, like a lot of the Yoko Ono pieces are never finished. It is almost infinite artwork in mm. a way, and obviously that relates back to her early Fluxus experience and some of the music that was being made around there, this kind of transience but eternal kind of processes or systems or ambitions to make work like that. Yeah. But I think, yeah, a Yoko piece doesn't finish. I was making myself a cup of tea this morning and realised, of course, that I was performing a disappearance piece. Which, <laughs> yeah. And the instruction, the, the instructions that are just boil water. I mean, I know that's comic, but A, it, it, she is comic at times. That was but, finished or, only when you went to the bathroom about an hour later. Yes. <laughs> but, um, well, it's a toilet piece is also a yeah, yeah, it is. Yes, it? so uh, we're not going off topic there. But the thing is that kind of, so... It allows you to kind of carry on, as as Jennifer says, it allows you to carry on outside of the gallery, but it also kind of gives you that moment realisation that you are creating art with every kind of little banal thing that you do. Yeah. yeah. And one, I wanted to look at another, the, the yes piece, the ladder piece, as it turns out, a fateful piece in mm-hmm. the history of 20th century art and pop culture generally. It was the night she met John Lennon at the Indica Gallery. And this is work where you... And the the original is at the Tate Modern. It's a wonderful thing, because it, it's such a storied thing. Yeah. A single storied thing, has to be said. <laughs> boom. But um, <laughs> such a famous artwork. To see the original is sort of strange. It's obviously just a painter's ladder, mm. decorator's ladder. You walk up it. You can't in the exhibition because it is the original walk up this white painted ladder and you take a magnifying glass and you look at a, a piece of glass on the ceiling and it simply says yes on it. And this was the thing that sold John Lennon, I think. Um, and and this is, I guess, emblematic of the, as you sort of were saying, the sort of impish sense of humour, a lot yes, of these things. But also definitely. you're looking up into the sky. It is the possibility of of no end whatsoever. And positivity as well. Positivity. That's the, another yes. thing to say about yeah, yeah. Yoko. There's, there is, I think always an optimism even with her darkest pieces of work there is a hope or an optimism that kind of in terms of what people can do or what people will do with that artwork i always think it's really remarkable how when you sort of learn about her biography her early experiences then the things that she sort of was subject to after she got together with john lennon and Mm. then his death and you know various things throughout her biography but even though there are lots of serious bits of her work, she's not a wallower. She never no. wallows. And actually, it's quite hard to find her coming out to condemn any of that treatment or to sort of hit back or respond yeah. in any way. So she of... embodies the thoughts that she had about peace and about 
I suppose lots of her artworks are about patience, mm. forbearance, well, the, these things, right? I'm not sure that always played out in her in, in like her personal <laughs> things. You know, there's always a book. I think. Right. I think with lots of very. I was thinking about this before the podcast. I do think with lots of extremely iconic sort of pop culture women, we always have a book. Okay. Yeah, I think we always have a book. And with Yoko, there's always books like, but she, you know, dealt with personal family relations in a certain way. That yeah, yeah. Mm. So there's always. Caveat. But that's always disallowing the female artist to have the ego yeah, of an I artist, think it's let alone that of a male artist. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I we might that's... be getting into the long grass here because she, <laughs> she sort of yeah, she is an optimist and she sort of does embody that piece in a way, but also that's mm. not in a kind of like. I think that's uh, it's really difficult how you unpack I that. Think I think a lot yeah. of her art is about the act of disappearing, and you can look at that in a positive and negative way in terms of how she removes herself from certain things and certain situations. But you look at it right from the start; it's about kind of invisibility, becoming mm-hmm. a spirit, disappearing. And there are, as Jennifer says, there's numerous ways of looking at that in a positive and negative way in terms of how she lived her own life. Mm-hmm. But as you say, that is kind of separate from the art that she leaves for us and kind of what we do with it and, you know, the questions it causes mm. us to ask. And I think there's a sense in which how she survived after John Lennon's death is because of these new metaphysical rules of language that she creates through her mm-hmm. art, a new way of thinking, and gives us, like, a new way of coping, you know, sort of finding something previously hidden within yourself, which is what her art is about. It's mm. kind of And so yeah. applying those rules to herself and actually kind of getting through. I thought, yeah, I'm, absolutely, and I thought this this show, far be it for a show like this to need to rehabilitate the reputation of, of Yoko Ono as an artist, but it damn well did. Mm. Because after Lennon's death, it was it was just people in the public imagination, but or popular imagination perhaps, seem to think the image of Yoko is of lighting candles for peace at various places all over the world, especially in New York City, I guess. Then it becomes a sort of trope. It just becomes a pop cultural trope that you see on the TV a couple of times a year or something like this. And it sort of boils to to be reminded of all of the original reasons why this stuff existed Mm. and that they were artistic statements of deep-seated humorous meaning and loose loose meaning, but nonetheless great artistic intention. I thought I I found it moving by the end of, of walking mm. around that press room. I really, really thought it was wonderful stuff. And to, and I think the pacing of it was obviously chronological. Well, I say obviously chronological, it is chronological. But for it to start with that idea of the evacuated young Yoko Ono when she was I think twelve, of the American firebombing of Tokyo, she and her brother were moved out to the countryside and they imagined delicious food when they had none in the sort of they were evacuated to Nagano which is quite a mountainous area of Japan and yeah and it was amazing and it, it started it all started with that I think she's quoted as saying that was her first art perhaps that was her first artwork was mm. just imagining ice cream well, it's I mean sa- salmon, salmon rolls or something yeah. Yeah. tuna fish sandwiches yeah. I always that's thought it. that work was yeah. I wondered for a while I think that's on the back of the version of grapefruit that I've got that's mm. the one that's quoted and I was like why is that one there and then it took mm. me a while to realise oh that is the one that's actually at the heart of her work, like yeah, and thousand also, sons and a tuna fish sandwich. The line, you know, I I did a phone interview with Yoko quite a few years ago, and I kind of and it always been that kind of rumor that she co-wrote Imagine. It was before she came out and said it herself, and you know, and Leonard had said something to that effect. So I'd asked her about it, 
And she kind of averred slightly and then kind of basically kind of said yes. But what's interesting about imagine is that it kind of, that is such a Yoko word. But in a way, those lines like um, imagine no religion, imagine no possessions are very much Yoko scores. They, they are like little pieces of sort of Yoko artwork. They're like, they're like parts of grapefruit, aren't they? Exactly, they are like parts yeah, of grapefruit. Yeah. And... What changes Imagine, and I think means is one of the reasons why people don't like it as a song, is kind of what Lennon does to it. Because you've got these little Cohen-like riddles without a solution. And Lennon provides the solution. And in the process, I think, brings a kind of superiority and arrogance to those words that aren't there in Yoko's lines. So, I hope someday you may join us. And the yeah. world may live as one. So well, that's the, the pop star, and you've got the well, pop star and the artist. Well, exactly. There, right? So yeah. it's per, yeah. it's a you, you, yeah. you've said it. That it's a perfect yeah. example of the negatives and the positives of that union. You've got Yoko throwing out these little kind of Cohen-like riddles for you to contemplate and yeah. for them to adjust, you know, adjust your brain. And then you've got Lennon coming in and making it this kind of. You know, smarmy <laughs> yeah. philosophy. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> it's really interesting about the two sides of that very forceful, powerful, meaningful artistic duo as they Absolutely. became yeah. was sort of birthed in, yeah, a sort of thing that started off as an artwork and ended up being a pop song. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. One of the things that really struck me is like, if you look up, if you put in, type into YouTube Yoko music, you will get a, a piece of film of her screaming and yeah. someone going, call this music, it's terrible, awful. <laughs> and one of the things that I liked about the exhibition is it it places the scream at the end. There's yeah. a film of her, her screaming, but it's at the end of the exhibition after you've understood everything else. And I do feel that was kind of conscious. It's like kind of, what's the one thing that someone who doesn't know about Yoko Ono knows about Yoko Ono? Yeah. It's like, oh, she she does that horrible screaming. Yeah, and and it's right, and it's the last film, isn't it? Yes. The last scream, and it's her in the mid nineties or even two thousand. So it's her as an older woman. Yeah. So it's mm. it's kind of a still got it. Oh, well, exactly. Thing, which you I see love, it. You, know? yeah. you see it as an image of power. Yeah. You see it as this kind of like defiant image of power yeah. at the end, after all the other stuff that you've known about. It. I mean, partly, I I wonder if that's like a curatorial decision for this like this thing that comes up quite often obviously that we're much more ready to sort of approach radical art than we are radical music yes mm. um and i do think that and and i also i thought they dealt really well with the sound and music aspect in that show like often uh shows with a lot of music in they just become a kind of cacophony that you kind of have to surf and it's quite difficult mm. because you kind of can't shut off your ears or like look you know it's all kind of mingling together but that listening room is really really nice it's it's great i would say the they might move the hammer piece it is well what <laughs> i my, did think it's not my favorite path of south london i have to say uh, the the point about the yeah the nail painting yeah, the nail if painting. you do want to hammer a nail in it was already nearly full of press view i wonder if they're going to replace it yeah but the thing about the nail pieces, as I was going through, I, re- I realised that that sound aspect of it, this hammering, made it sound like the, inst- the it was still being installed. Yeah. And I was like, that is perfect. <laughs> this feels like, this. it sounds like this This whole show is unfinished because somebody's constantly hammering on the wall. And I was just Which like, is, this is perfect. Yeah. There we are. Jennifer, you can do the poster quotes. <laughs> <laughs> the layman thinks she's just, uh, it was just uh, John Lennon's wife. Jesus, there's su- such a lot of rich in this Did show. everyone else know that John Lennon married one of the best flux societists? So. Woo! Yeah. 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 <laughs> what was it? it what was, was, um, um, well, um, what was the t-shirt, Andrew? Well, the, um, the, obviously the most um, common complaint amongst... Um, 
you know, Neanderthals and ignoramuses is um, Yoko Ono split up the Beatles. And there's a really lovely T-shirt that you can get that says John Lennon split up Fluxus. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good one. That was Andrew Mell and Jennifer Lucy Allen. Now, the show in question, Yoko Ono, Music of the Mind, at Tate Modern, is the UK's largest exhibition celebrating the work of Yoko Ono. I went along to the bustling preview morning of an exhibition that's noisy in and of itself, as you'll hear. And this is my conversation with the curator, Juliet Bingham. And here we are, we're standing just outside the entrance to Music of the Mind, your wonderful Yoko Ono show here at Tate Modern. Almost safe and sound from the amazing kind of sound world that Yoko Ono produced and that you've, you've put together for this show. Could you tell us a little bit about the title, actually, first of all? Yeah, so Music of the Mind was the name of a talk that she gave in the States in 1966 and then also used the same title for a series of performances and events in London and Liverpool. And the idea of Music of the Mind was really to stimulate the imagination. And that's very much what Yoko Ono was doing with her groundbreaking instructions, or basically do-it-yourself art scores. So we wanted to immediately sow that seed which she herself talks about a lot, the power of the imagination. She's referred to her work as, all my work is a form of wishing. So we really wanted to embed that, that it's actually about participation of the viewer, and it's both in your mind, but also participatory works that you can actively engage in. So they really underpin the exhibition, and her instructions form a kind of backbone on your journey around the show. So you're invited to step on a painting, to climb inside a bag and make sculptural forms, to shake hands through a canvas, to put your shadows together, to hammer a nail, and also to play a game of chess, only white pieces on a white chessboard. It's a way into the work which has a certain humour to it, but white chess set, for example, is also underpinned by the idea that instead of a combatant position, that we can actually collaborate together. So it really feeds into her ongoing campaign for peace. And so much of the works, as you said, Juliet, finished by the viewer, as it were. They are completed by the viewer. This was in the early 1960s. This kind of hyper-conceptual stuff was, even then, was rare on the ground. And it was very much the era for that stuff, you might, you might say. How much, how ahead of her time, I wonder, do you, do you judge Yoko Ono's work in that period particularly? And how shocking was it to the world? seemed to get up the world's nose very sadly <laughs> at that time. And I wonder, I wonder how, whether that was just being before, being before her time. Well, I think she was an incredibly generous artist. Mm. She came to New York only age 23. She eloped there with Toshi Ishiyanagi. And then age 27, she rented a loft apartment, Chamber Street Loft Series, where she invited artists, musicians, performers to come and express themselves and to really develop their practices. She developed this form, a kind of art score, initially showing paintings and whispering the instruction for the paintings to visitors who came to the show. That was in 1961 in New York. And then a year later, showing only the texts, just texts only, in her show in Japan. So it was a really big conceptual shift and very important in the beginnings of conceptual art. She was also very close friends with George Matunius, who, of course, went on to establish the very loose international collective, the Fluxus Movement. And a lot of the ways that Ono worked were really foundational to that flowering um, collective. 
So I think, yeah, she's incredibly innovative. Her yeah. practice is incredibly ahead of its time. And it's part and parcel of the success of this show, actually, people interact, people finishing those works, people interacting, as you, you've said, with the, the list of some of these seminal works, which absolutely require the viewer and the, the participant, I suppose. Is that a, part, a sign of the success of it, that there is, there's a bit of noise in, in this show, that there is, yeah, there's a lot of movement and there's a lot of people getting involved without just their minds? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also showing documentary footage, for example, of her work Cut Piece. So she first performed that in Tokyo and Kyoto in 1964. And that's a really revolutionary work because she was kind of inverting the role of artist and performer. And she referred to it as like letting go of artist ego. She sits motionless on the stage wearing her best outfit with a pair of scissors in front of her and the invitation is for members of the public to come and take cut off pieces of her clothing and keep take a keepsake so she referred to it very much as a form of giving and taking and it's a very important work in terms of this reversal of like role of artist and audience so many of the works in the exhibition that we are able to realize are an invitation for people to directly participate yeah and just finally there are People think of Yoko Ono's, the, the, the perhaps uninitiated think of Yoko Ono's work and feel that it's very, it's ideas heavy and artifact light. It seems to suit the era that we're in um, very comfortably, actually. I wonder what you think of that, whether it's, it, it sits very comfortably in 2024 in London or a major capital city of the world where her prophecy of peace and you know giving things away seems to if not be coming true be a desire for a new generation of people that might be visiting Tate Modern for example so I think without wanting to put ideas and words in your mouth well no I think what's really interesting about Ono's work the openness the invitation to participate those ideas really underpin a lot of what Tate Modern is about Mm. and actually we want to be an open forum we want people to feel comfortable we want them to participate we want to you know to promote a kind of collective action and that really underpins a lot of her works yeah, and working with the studio, I know you've obviously worked um, very closely with Ono's studio to bring this show together. There are amazing things that have never been seen in the UK before. How long has this process been in the works to, to get this stuff together? It's, it's such a generous show. It's, it's really big. There's such a lot of stuff here. People need to, you know, can happily spend hours and days here, I suppose. But tell us a little bit, just finally, about, about getting the works here and, 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 and getting the, these sort of seminal works collected here at Tate Modern. So I think Ono has been known for lots of different things and there were certain reactions to her work in the 60s, negative reactions. She's been subject to a lot of misogyny and racism and I think that for a younger generation who aren't tainted by that, this will be really a revelation because it will contain a lot of works that people are less familiar with and even if there's only you know, a hint of what she's known for, we hope that this is a revelatory journey through seven decades of her work. Um, we also wanted to build on important exhibitions that have taken place like the Serpentine Show in 2012 and she curated the Meltdown Festival at Southbank Centre the same year. So we wanted to really go a little bit deeper into the kind of historical roots and bring together archival work, unseen photography, as well as recreations of some of her participatory things. So we hope that it provides a way in for people who are not so familiar. And, um, you know, as she did, there's a lot of humour in her practice, which allows a kind of gentle way in to some really um, much more complex kind of ideas and 
certainly her humanitarian causes. That was Tate curator Juliet Bingham. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Juliet and to Jennifer Lucy Allen and Andrew Mayle. Yoko Ono, Music of the Mind, is on at the Tate Modern now until September. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Gu. And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. (laughs) 